you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. On Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, there was a very, very popular nightclub right there where hip-hop was just coming. We'd go, Easy e was there, Ice-T, all the big names in the city just go there and check new rappers. This is Namdi Moeda, the host of a radio show called Radio Aphrodisia on KPFK, a radio station based here in Los Angeles. I remember Ice-T or, or Easy e put a microphone, they're ready to talk, they're ready to give you some rhymes right there on the mic. Yeah. Namdi covered the hip-hop scene in L.A. during the 80s as part of a radio series called Roots of Rap, which traced the roots of rap music back to Africa. Namdi went to different clubs and shows around the city with this microphone, capturing the sounds of the burgeoning hip-hop scene. 9817 FM My name is Namdi. Welcome to the show. The hip-hop scene was getting really huge. I mean, the numbers were big in terms of the audience they were pulling. But at that time, not many people took it serious, really. Nobody ever believed it would be where it is today, 50 years after that, you know. Hip-hop wasn't playing much on the radio at the time, and people like Namdi accessed the music through vinyl records and cassette tapes. But Namdi loved the music, and his favorite style of hip-hop? For me, West Coast hip-hop has always been the king. West Coast hip-hop was more in your face, was ready to tackle issues that had to deal with the community, had to do with uh, police brutality, had to deal with brotherhood and all that. Those days was about telling what happened, what's happening in this community. Remember that time we had no cell phones those days, you know, to document what was really happening. So these people were the people that were really telling us what was happening in the neighborhood, in different parts of the city, you know. I wanted to talk to Namdi about one specific gangster rap song from 1991, Black Korea by the rapper Ice Cube. It's a lesser-known song, but it was really controversial at the time it came out because the song included racial slurs against Koreans and a threat to burn down Korean-owned stores at a time when racial tensions were really high in South L.A. I heard about Black Korea. I heard about Ice Cube. I, I didn't really pay much more attention because... Uh, the city needed healing at that time. That song came out at a very tough time in the city, you know. There was no way I could play that on the radio. There was no way I would even entertain playing that on the radio because what good would that do to the communities, to the African-American community or to the Korean community? So I stayed away from it. The whole reason I wanted to talk to Namdi about this song was because it captured something very real that was happening in Los Angeles in the late 80s and early 90s. At the same time that hip-hop was making its way into South Korea through Korean-Americans from L.A. and then shaping K-pop, there was this song by a huge rapper, Ice Cube, that presented a completely different relationship between the Black community and Korean community in Los Angeles. And I felt like there's no way to talk about Korean-Americans and hip-hop 
without also talking about Black Korea and the reality it reflected. And how the tensions captured in the music would eventually come to a head in one of the most significant events in Los Angeles' history. The 1992 L.A. Uprising. From LA's studios, this is K-Pop Dreaming. I'm Vivian Yoon, and in this episode, we are going to try and answer the question, how do we think about the influx of Black music into South Korea in the 80s and 90s, while also thinking about the relationship between the Black and Korean communities in LA that was happening at the same time? And this is something that a lot of K-Pop fans are still grappling with today. Because as we've seen in previous episodes, K-pop owes so much to Black American music and culture. So in this episode, we're going to try and provide some context for that question by visiting South Central in the 80s and early 90s. We'll also talk about the LA uprising and see how the aftermath of the unrest ended up shaping the early career of a Korean-American rapper named Tiger JK, who would eventually become known as the godfather of Korean hip-hop. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Elias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. So hip-hop originated in New York City in the 1970s. And for most of the 80s, East Coast hip-hop was the dominant form of hip-hop. These were people like Run DMC, Public Enemy, Queen Latifah. But then in 1988, one album came out that shined a spotlight on West Coast hip-hop, ushering in a new age of gangster rap. That album? N.W.A.'s Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton, crazy very hard-hitting, as you know, very profane. And it was sort of, to me, protest music because there was so much frustration in L.A. amongst Black people. This is Aaron Aubrey Kaplan, a writer and journalist who has been covering Black communities in Los Angeles for over 30 years for publications like the L.A. Times, Accent L.A., and L.A. Weekly. I grew up listening to, you know, soul, R&B, a lot of ballads, a lot of, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, sort of like positive music, like Ain't no stopping us now and message music, right? Message music. And even when it was hard hitting, it was sort of coded. And Aaron remembers witnessing the change in hip hop in the 80s, specifically the rise of L.A. gangster rap. The gloves were off in this music. And all of a sudden it was angry and it was, you know, F you. It took a lot of people by surprise. I think that was as big a shock to many people as 
all the other forces that were happening. Rap was already, you know, had a had a history, but it was the tenor and the tone and the and the sort of anger that took me off guard. Do you remember the first like gangster rap song you heard that took you by surprise? Probably NWA, F the police. The police coming straight from the underground. One of the most famous songs from Straight Outta Compton. I, look, I know black people hated the police. That wasn't that wasn't new. It was just not said in music like that. It was like the blues, you know, it was implied. But NWA laid it all out there in their lyrics. And a lot of what their music talked about was specific to Los Angeles. There was so much wealth and affluence in L.A. But the black community? And they were stuck at the bottom. And so I think that my theory has always been that the gangster rap came out of this feeling like in L.A. we should all have a piece of the pie, right? Aaron says there were so many socioeconomic issues plaguing South Central at the time, but they weren't getting much media coverage. People often called NWA the CNN of South Central. Like, you know, it was the news. It was a news report that you didn't hear. So what kinds of issues were referenced in NWA's music? To understand that, you first have to understand the history of South L.A., also known as South Central. So South Central is this sprawling region of Los Angeles that is located south of downtown L.A. And, you know, it contains over 20 different neighborhoods, so it's a pretty large region. And historically, in the early part of the 20th century, South Central had been a pretty diverse area, both in terms of the racial makeup and the economic one. Like in the 1930s and 40s, you had wealthy black and white people living in mansions right next to neighborhoods where working class people lived. But then in the 1960s... South Central and Crenshaw almost like very dramatically became very black and kind of what you call resegregated. This is around the time that Aaron grew up in Inglewood, which was right next to South Central. And there was one event in 1965 that led to dramatic changes in the neighborhood. The Watts Riots, which erupted after an incident of police brutality against a black motorist. That was the first unrest, you know, historical unrest in L.A. And then all of a sudden, white flight took off like a rocket. So Watts is only one of the many neighborhoods in South Central. But I think that the places, the adjacent places that had Black populations like South Central became what in the minds of a lot of white people, and they just left. They, they practically gave away their houses, right? I mean, a lot of, not just white people left, but institutions left, banks and lending institutions. And it wasn't just those folks who left, it was the Black middle class that left. So anyway... The South Central ended up with a lot of low-income Black folks. And as time went on, South Central experienced a series of devastating blows that stacked on top of each other. From the 1970s onward, there was a huge and rapid decline in manufacturing jobs that led to widespread unemployment and poverty. Then there was the gang problem, which tied to the public safety problem. This was around the time you saw the rise of gangs in South Central, like the Bloods and the Crips. Another huge problem was over-policing. The LAPD was conducting mass arrests of Black American youth, and police officers frequently engaged in racial profiling and excessive force. And then, of course, at the same time, there was crack epidemic. But really, L.A. really suffered 
because it was the entry point for coke, cocaine, and just devastated Black communities. So by the 1980s, South Central was dealing with a lot of different issues. Which brings us back to gangster rap. So I think that the shout from the bottom, which got everybody's attention, was, you know, there was a real truth to it, a hard truth. Aaron felt the shouting also came through in how people listened to the music. I thought, why do they play it so loud? You know, that 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 turn that volume up so high, that was brand new. You know, you played your radio in the car. You sang to yourself with the windows up. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like it's blasting out people's ears, which again goes to the original intent of the music, which is shouting to be heard. So after NWA straight out of Compton, gangster rap started to spread all over the world. And the more popular the music got, the more conflicted Aaron felt. I'd be driving in LA and I hear it booming. Some, you know, I look over to my left and there was a white guy, and you know, Korean or Asian, and I think, oh my God. It just seemed like I'm conditioned to resent. It feels like appropriation, right? Even though it was out there, they were trying to sell this stuff. But it immediately became so appealing to people. And yet I thought, why don't they care about the real problem? Everybody was buying this music. Everybody was imitating it. And we were stuck at the bottom. This was a big part of the tensions that were captured in gangster rap. This feeling of being stuck at the bottom that came from a sense of disenfranchisement and lack of opportunities in Black neighborhoods. And one group of people contributed to that feeling in South Central. Korean merchants. So for a long time, the merchant class in South Central was predominantly Jewish. But by the 1970s, the Jewish merchant class had largely left the neighborhood, and newly immigrated Koreans started opening small businesses to fill the gap. The merchant class in South Central became largely Korean. The convenience stores and liquor stores. And so pattern was every merchant class was not black. Do you remember going to any of the Korean owned businesses in the neighborhood? Sure. I remember going to a lot of places that were Korean owned and not just the stores, but you know, like auto repair and they just became part of the landscape. Aaron says over time, tensions started building between the Korean merchants and their black customers. Part of this was due to the physical layouts of the stores themselves. There were bars on the windows. There were plexiglass, you know, shields and stores, etc. There was the message of distrust and we'll take your money, but we're not going to be your friends. There was also frustration about why Koreans were able to open businesses in the neighborhood in the first place, while Black residents couldn't. Remember, Aaron said a lot of banks left South Central after the Watts riots. But even beyond that, Black people had to deal with an inherently racist system. There's just been so such a history of redlining in this country that really, you know, meaning keeping Black people out of, you know, home ownership and business ownership. And so what, a lot of the frustration was that other people, you know, new immigrants could get loans like that. But also Koreans had a network, their own financial institutions that, you know, we didn't have. I remember hearing a lot of conversations in the 80s, 90s about we need to do what the Koreans do. It was really a conversation about we need to band together like other people and support each other. And, you know, that was a valid conversation, except all of the the structural problems that, that the exclusion that was legal for so, so long, 
it was very hard to think of both things at once. Over time, the presence of Korean merchants started becoming a problem. Aaron's father was a well-known L.A. activist named Larry Aubrey. I remember my father, you know, seeing this as a potential issue. Like people, black people were grumbling about the, the Korean, you know, immigrants. Aaron says that Larry was concerned about the growing divide between the two communities. In the 80s, Larry was working at the L.A. County Human Relations Commission. And that's where he co-founded something called the Black Korean Alliance, which attempted to bridge the two communities. I had never heard of this before, an official program from the county that specifically dealt with Black-Korean relations. Larry passed away in 2020, but I did get to speak with one of his colleagues from back then, who he worked with closely. A longtime Korean-American community organizer and activist named Jay Lee Wong. We'll meet at a Korean restaurant in Koreatown. And so people always like meeting at the restaurant because, you know, people like coming for food. <laughs> food is always a unifying force, no matter what, right? This is Jay talking about the meetings that the Black Korean Alliance hosted for leaders of both communities. It was a little chummy, but also underneath there's a lot of tension. There was always cordial greetings in the beginning, and then uh, we'll get to some of the conversations and discussions around what can we do together. Fostering these kinds of conversations was a big part of what the Black Korean Alliance did, along with reaching out to various representatives of the communities to come to these meetings. People like... Korean ministers, African-American ministers, Korean merchants. So Jay and Larry got all these people in one room or restaurant to try and talk through different issues. But these meetings only took place once a month or every two months. The rest of the time, Jay says she and Larry were on the ground in South Central, speaking with Korean merchants and Black residents. We would drive out to South LA and we'll make visits to some of the Korean merchants that are open to working with us. So we'll hang out all day, we'll leave in the morning, and then we'll often end up at the Roscoe for lunch. Jay says a lot of Korean merchants didn't really want to work with them. I think that looking back, oftentimes Korean-American representatives felt that they were on defensive. For example, hiring from Black community was one of the consistent demands at that time. And for Korean merchants who are in South LA, they felt like they couldn't afford to hire anyone, right? So, you know, it's usually the situation the immigrant community uh, families would work, take ships, and they work all day, all night, practically, and they barely made it. So profit margin wasn't necessarily that high, uh, but that was only means for uh, survival for many of the Korean immigrants. Um, and so they would feel very uh, defensive or uh, up against the wall because that's not a demand that they could really meet. As an example, Jay says there were exceptions, though, like one Korean merchant who reached out to the surrounding community. He hired black employees and had giveaways around the holidays, but he was only one of few Korean merchants who made this kind of effort. And Jay says just the presence of Korean merchants also fed into the tension. So it was another for uh, African-American communities, another example of how newcomers are getting better share than they ever had right? Because it's a historic marginalization of the community. This brought up a question for me. How were Korean immigrants able to open businesses in South Central in the first place? 
From everything I had read, a lot of Koreans who had emigrated to the U.S. in the 70s and 80s, they were fleeing the effects of the Korean War and weren't necessarily wealthy. And Aaron had mentioned something about Koreans having their own financial networks and communal systems in place. But what was that? Jay explains that system was actually a specific Korean communal practice. You know, Korean credit rotating system, that's how many of the merchants were getting their seed money. Because oftentimes when you go to the bank, you have to have some credit or collateral. And most the immigrants didn't have a house or anything that they owned at that time. This credit rotation system is called K. You know, they get into K, uh, they pull their money together, and when it's their turn, then they use that to put a down payment for a very small business. And they work their ass off. Jay says that every group that got into K set their own rules for how it operated, like how often the pool of money rotated, for example. It could be every two months or a year or five years. But this system dates all the way back to the 16th century and is still commonly used by Koreans today. So this system, K, is how a lot of Koreans got money to open stores. And the reason so many Koreans went to South Central was because it was cheaper to open businesses there as opposed to Koreatown or other parts of L.A. So one of the issues that we heard were one of the ways that Korean merchants showed disrespect where they put the change on the table. They'll throw it down instead of uh, handing it. And so that was interpreted as that somehow they don't want to be touched, right? So that's just an example, you know. Jay says there were a lot of things like that that contributed to the feeling of disrespect. But for Jay, the situation was more complicated. I mean, so context is like, here are Korean immigrants who are working very long hours, constantly tired, constantly fearful that they are getting ripped off or that there is something else happening. So the initial encounter is not a positive one. Jay feels there was some cultural context missing too. We also come with a history of oppression and distrust, right? So, you know, Koreans have been, you know, occupied by so many different people. So, you know, we carry our history in the way in which we behave and see the world. But there was never an opportunity for either group to be able to really understand one another. Jay was also frustrated with the way the problems between these communities were framed. Part of the problem was, and still is, is that once it became a Black-Korean relations issue, then it stayed there. So the government, the decision makers were off the hook. It was just the problem that two groups had to work out. And I think that was really a problem because neither group had that kind of power or resources. So Jay and Larry keep working to try and bridge the two communities. But tensions just keep rising until the spring of 1991. So Black Korean Alliance was chugging along. And then the Latasha Holland's case happened. Latasha Harlins was 15 when she was shot and killed by a liquor store owner, a Korean immigrant who accused the teen of trying to steal a bottle of orange juice. Witnesses said Harlins had cash in her hand. Merchant Su Ja Du was convicted of voluntary manslaughter. Her sentence, five years probation, no jail time. Here's Aaron again, the journalist, talking about covering the case for Accent LA, 
a Black American monthly news magazine in Los Angeles. We followed very closely the whole case of Latasha Harlan, Soon Jadu, and the judge, Joyce Carlin, because she, you know, the sentence she handed down was very light. Another unflattered contrast with what happened to a lot of Black people in the criminal justice system, accused of far lesser crimes. So it was that context that was just really angering. This is Jay again, the activist. It was extremely complicated. And uh, the judge at that time didn't do anybody a favor by giving such a light sentence to Sun Jadu, which further fed into the racist criminal justice system. We were having some very tense meetings. So a number of the folks, especially African-Americans, said that we need to let things cool down because they were getting a lot of pressure from their constituents and their community members about what they were doing, talking with the Korean community. So we just couldn't force people to show up anymore. And so we took a break and then ended up eventually uh, spending. The Black Korean Alliance dissolved. And later that year, in October 1991, Ice Cube released his solo album, Death Certificate. One of the songs on that album was Black Korea. The song contains so many expletives, it's actually tough to include it on the podcast. But the lyrics reference going to a Korean liquor store and feeling mistreated. Here's Aaron again. That is actually social commentary in that a lot of what he was saying about being followed in the store, I heard a lot of people complain about that. You know, there was this, this seemed like this culture of suspicion. I also heard him deliberately, you know, misnaming Koreans, Chinese, you know, whatever, whoever you are, you're all the same. So here, Aaron is referring to a line in the song where Ice Cube calls the shop owner Chinese and drops phrases like chop suey. But also, what I jumped out at me was, if you don't respect us, we'll burn you down. So pay respect to the black fist, or we'll burn your storm right down to a crisp. And then we'll see ya, cause you can't turn to get em in the black Korea. Korea. Every time I hear those lyrics, I almost get the chills. Because they were so eerily accurate and they almost foretold what would happen just a few months later. When Korean-owned businesses all across South Central and Koreatown would go up in flames. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Talking with Aaron and Jay and listening to Black Korea, it makes me realize... I didn't know any of this before. I learned about the L.A. uprising briefly in school, 
But there was never any context for the lead-up to the events, or the existence of a Black-Korean alliance. And I definitely never heard personal stories about this time from the perspective of the Korean-American community. And I think the main reason I'm so surprised by how little I knew is because I knew Korean store owners growing up. Some of my friends' parents had liquor stores in South Central, and there were adults at my church who owned stalls at swap meets. But none of them ever talked about this time, at least not to me. And my parents and grandparents, they never talked about it with me either. Looking back, it feels like the Korean community has largely stayed silent about what they went through back then. Which isn't surprising to me because... I grew up feeling like there was a culture of silence when it came to certain difficult topics, and I never felt free to ask questions that might rub people the wrong way or potentially bring up bad memories. I can't speak for the entire Korean-American community in L.A., but I can imagine this was a really difficult time for a lot of Koreans in the city. Not just in the 80s with the tensions between the Black and Korean communities, but also in 1992, during the uprising itself. In March of 1991, motorist Rodney King was beaten by four LAPD officers during his arrest. The event was captured on camera, and all four officers were charged with use of excessive force. Just over a year later, on April 29, 1992, the officers were acquitted of the charges. Do you remember where you were on the day that the four officers were acquitted of the beating of Rodney King? Yeah, I was, I was in Inglewood. I was relaxing that day. I was getting a facial. This is Aaron again, the journalist. The people I was with in the salon were like, they're black, other black people were just all shaking their heads. But then things started to, you know, the anger built that day in a way I'd never seen in LA before. Meanwhile, Jay, the activist, was on the other side of town. Larry and I were at a panel discussion at Cal State LA to talk about inter-ethnic relations at that time. And one of the questions that was posed to us was, will there be a riot? And if so, what would it be like? And both of us said, it's very possible because South LA has been neglected ever since Watts Riot and that socioeconomic conditions are worse. The plan was that when the verdict came down, we are going to all meet at First AME Church. I heard there was a rally or a gathering at First AME Church down in, you know, Western Adams near there. And I went with a friend and we drove there. But by the time we got there, it was clear to us right away that there was a lot of angry energy in the air. We couldn't just get out of our car and walk to a rally. You know, things were not normal. I remember getting near the church. Somebody picked up a trash can and threw it. And I just, like a javelin, just threw it. And all of a sudden, I mean, honestly, we didn't know if we were safe. We didn't know what was going to be targeted or what. We just know what was going to happen next. And so we turned around. And But even just turning around and retracing our steps, you know, the streets were fuller, with more people in the street. There were lots of cars, people heading toward First AME. I parked a few blocks away, and I started walking toward the church, and looked at the faces of people on the street. 
I thought, what am I doing? This is not safe. Because here I am, a Korean woman, you know? And I thought, okay, I had a better sense to get back in the car. I drove to Koreatown and I hadn't eaten all day, so I went to get a kimchi chigae. And here was on the television, one of the stores that we had mediated conflict several months ago was up in flame. Protests erupted all over the city that day. I feel that the jury in Simi Valley gave the okay to continue to abuse and oppress and suppress black people in this country. It's not right to hurt innocent people. It's not right to burn down the buildings. But if that's what it takes to get, you know, for somebody to listen and understand us, then that's what we have to do. It's very sad. It's uh, just a tragic sight to see areas of South Central hit this hard. The demonstrations quickly turned violent. And the unrest that began in South Central started spreading to other parts of Los Angeles County. Things continue to get worse. Over the next five days, thousands of people took to the streets across the city. And businesses in South Central and Koreatown were set on fire. Erin said she was at home during this time. Well, you know, it was a curfew. You couldn't even be outside. Oh, no, 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 no. I watched TV. You know, I was like, it was like Hurricane Katrina, really, right outside my door. I, I watched. I, I wanted to know what was happening. And, of course, you know, most of the coverage was about, are the rioters crossing the line? Are they going, are they getting to Trader Joe's? I mean, there were National Guards in the streets. But it was very, very, very much about law enforcement and keeping the streets safe. But there was very little discussion of what it actually uh, prompted people to get in the street. Um, it was, look at that, they're burning down their own community, you know, that whole narrative. Right. There's, you know, they're, they're unhinged, et cetera, et cetera. And Jay had a trip scheduled out of town. When I was at the airport, it was crazy because people were acting like this was the last flight out. And when we were flying, I could see the fires everywhere. My heart just dropped. I mean, it was a combination of sadness, anger, just frustration, and just felt like, oh my God, all the work that we have done, the efforts we have made, just like in flames. I mean, literally, right? That's saying that up in flames. It's hard to give a complete account of everything that happened during the six days of the uprising. But what we do know is that by the end, more than 60 people were killed, with thousands injured and up to 12,000 arrests. And of the estimated $1 billion in property damage, Korean-owned businesses were hit the hardest. More than 2,000 shops were destroyed or damaged. Remember those times? It was a very scary time in the city. This is Namdi again, the radio DJ we heard from earlier. So, I mean, if you have the platform to bring peace to the city, the most important thing is to bring peace to the city with whatever you're doing. In the aftermath of the uprising, people like Namdi started trying to figure out how to promote harmony and healing among different communities. So in September 1992, 
Namdi was part of something called the Los Angeles African Marketplace and Cultural Fair. This was an annual festival held in Los Angeles, and Namdi had a stage every year to showcase whatever kind of music he wanted. African music, hip-hop, Caribbean music, he played it all. But this year, he wanted to do something more specific. I said, okay, we're doing this series on the radio now called Roots of Rap. And I went to hip-hop stage and I want to bring a Korean rapper. The Korean rapper he's talking about was an up-and-comer named Tiger JK. So a quick note on Tiger JK. He is this really well-known and highly respected rapper in South Korea. And when I was growing up in Koreatown, all the K-Town kids loved Tiger JK. To us, he was like the Korean-American Jay-Z. But Namdi had actually met Tiger JK before the uprising, when Tiger JK was just a teen. Namdi says he was living in Koreatown at the time. And one of his neighbors found out that he was a DJ and decided to write a story about Namdi in the Korean newspaper. After the article ran, Tiger JK's dad, who also worked at that same paper, approached Namdi with a question. JK that, JK's dad came to me and said, you know, look, I have this son who goes to Beverly Hills High School. He wants to be a rapper. Can you help? I said, sure. I was also working with a group in the community that time called the Soul Brothers. Three young guys with dreadlocks and they dance, they write music. So Namdi gets Tiger JK together with the Soul Brothers. So we started working with JK. They started teaching him how to dance, how to rap. Tiger JK didn't want to be interviewed for the podcast, but Namdi says he was quick to soak up the moves and sound. Was he a good rapper when he started, or what was his rapping like? Oh, your rapping was good, but the, the most important thing is that JK was a quick learner. When he came to the dance, when he came to lyrics and everything, JK was right on top of it. JK was able to pick on things real, real quick. And here's an interesting connection to something we talked about earlier. In 1991, when Ice Cube came out with the song Black Korea, Tiger JK was a junior in high school. And several Korean publications say that when Tiger JK heard the song, he was bothered by the lyrics. So for a school assignment, Tiger JK decided to refute Ice Cube's song with his own rap. And the presentation was said to be so good that he won an award at school. And that led to word spreading about the young Korean rapper. And then a year later, after the uprising, when Namdi was putting together his part of the African Music Festival, he suggested adding Tiger JK to the lineup. And the people working with me at that time were like, you know, dude, what's going on? <laughs> you bring a Korean rapper in the middle of the hood when the tension is high. Did you kind of do that on purpose? I did it on purpose. You know, I mean, I grew up basically in the city and I felt having Tiger JK come into the community and rap at that time was something very important. Mind you, we broadcast that whole performance on the radio. So lots of people heard it. I felt it was very important at that time to showcase Tiger JK, to calm down the situation, to let people know that, look, this music that came from our community here, that's going to make an impact not only here in, in the community, but across the water. 
Namdi says even back then, the goal was for Tiger JK to go to Korea and pursue hip-hop out there. But at this moment, Namdi just wanted to use this festival to get Tiger JK some exposure and bring the community together. So it's the day of the festival, less than six months after the uprising. It was right in the middle of summer, hot, hot, hot summer days. This festival at that time was at the school called Dossie High School. And you have different stage, you have the Caribbean stage, R&B stage. And then you have uh, merchants selling clothes and stuff from Africa. We have food. Audience was mostly black because, you know, this festival happens right in the middle of the community. Namdi stage is called Roots of Rap. He's the MC, and throughout the day, he introduces each act as they come up on stage and perform. All the artists are Black American, African, or Caribbean. Then finally, it's time to introduce Tiger JK. In Los Angeles here, we have new artists, people never heard of. We're in an era now where and Namdi, being the MC, makes a very particular choice. Oh, he made it sound like he came from South Korea. <laughs> he flew in from South Korea. So Tiger JK had been born in South Korea, but he moved to America when he was 11 years old and was living in L.A. at the time of this performance. Why did you do that? Well, <laughs> well you know, as, as a showbiz man, you, we, do, we do hype. <laughs> he lived with us right here in Korea town, you know. From Korea coming your way direct from Seoul, Korea. Right. Tiger JK walks out on stage. And the audience? They were shocked, really. <laughs> they were shocked. They were shocked to see him. The audience is stunned at seeing this Korean-American kid on stage. So this is a Korean rapping in the language and in English and making all these moves on stage. I mean, this is a serious move. And then you infuse that with the Taekwondo move and all that. That was something new in the community. Wait, so he was... Rapping in Korean and English, English and then yeah, he was yeah, dancing yeah, and yeah. he was doing Taekwondo moves? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he was, he was a special kid at that time, man. I mean, and I knew it all along. I couldn't find any clips from the festival or the song Tiger JK performed. I'm not sure there's even a recording of it. And Namdi says he doesn't really remember what the song was about either. There was so much going on that day, and he was prepping for the next act. Also, part of the song was in Korean, which Namdi doesn't understand. But what Namdi does remember is that it wasn't just Tiger JK's rapping that impressed the audience. It was his entire performance overall. I think the dance moves with what blew the audience away a lot, too. Like, who's this Korean kid giving us all these moves, you know? Because if you watch, if you go back and look at the videos of the Soul Brothers, the way they danced, the way they moved, like they had no bones in them, you know. Those were the things they were teaching JK those days. Finally, the performance ends, and Namdi says the crowd went nuts. The crowd loved it. The crowd enjoyed the show. They find it something different, you know, because uh, there were other acts we had that, on that day, but Tiger was able to stand out. The festival was broadcast live on the radio station where Namdi was a DJ. Soon after, 18-year-old Tiger JK was invited to be a guest on The Johnny Yoon Show, an American-style talk show on a local Korean channel. Tiger, 
It gets him noticed by a famous South Korean rapper who flies Tiger JK out to South Korea. There, he releases his debut album called Enter the Tiger. And on one of the tracks, he even includes a radio interview he did with Namdi. We hear you doing hip hop and uh, ragamuffin style. You know, which area will you do more? I'm trying to do like it's me. You know what I'm saying? I'm Tiger JK, so I want to do all kind of stuff. Like it's me. A few know. years later, in 1999, Tiger JK forms the rap duo Drunken Tiger, and their song "Do You Know Hip Hop" becomes an instant classic. Drunken Tiger quickly gained steam and were seen as pioneers in the hip hop scene in Korea. Today, Tiger JK is known as the godfather of Korean hip hop, and current K-pop superstars like RM from BTS cite Tiger JK as a huge influence. In 2018, Drunken Tiger released a song called "Timeless" that featured RM. But part of what makes Tiger JK special is that he's been vocal for a long time about various social issues, like he's spoken out against racism throughout his career, specifically addressing things like Asian hate in America and racism against Black people in South Korea. And he's even said he tries to use music to combat racism, like this song called "Love Peace" from 2021. Tiger JK said he wrote the song as a response to the rise of anti-Asian hate around the world, and purposefully included strong language and music to portray Asians as being powerful. The lyrics say, "Yellow skin, my people with bruises on our hearts. Yellow skin, my people with blood boiling in our hearts." It's interesting looking at all the different connections between Los Angeles hip hop and K-pop. Because the history is really layered, especially when you think about Tiger JK learning how to rap and dance from the Soul Brothers, and how he wrote a response to Ice Cube's Black Korea, and how he was the only Korean rapper on the lineup at this African music festival, as part of an effort to promote healing among the Black and Korean communities after the LA uprising. And Tiger JK is still making socially conscious music now, trying to bridge different communities together through his songs. I asked Namdi, the radio DJ, how he feels about hip hop and K-pop. I'm very happy, really, to tell you the truth, because one, hip hop, hip hop plays a very big role. Hip hop comes with message, you know, and seeing what's going on around the globe. I mean, looking at hip hop still being strong for after 50 years, you know,、um, hip hop is here to stay, you know. And Namdi actually has a personal connection to K-pop. My daughter is a big BTS fan. <laughs> Going to her bedroom, she got BTS posters on the wall. She went to SoFi Stadium to see B- BTS, and you know how much that cost me. You know. <laughs> so you're very personally affected by your daughter's love for K-pop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your wallet. Oh yeah. 
Namdi's daughter being a fan of K-pop. It reinforces this idea that all of these different types of music and the communities behind them are connected. And the way that people all over the world are now fans of K-pop reminds me of how hip-hop appealed to young people everywhere in the 80s and 90s. The music was universal, which is why Korean-Americans like Tiger JK were listening to hip-hop in the first place. I asked Erin, the journalist, how she felt about the music's appeal to Korean-Americans back then. I mean, you know, in the 90s or even now, when you saw, like, you know, Asians or Korean-Americans dressing in that, like, L.A. gangster wear and, like, bumping rap music, was it, like, cringe to you? I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Less cringe to me than see white people do it. Oh, my God. I just think that that, that just is hardwired in me. But I really, somehow I felt like people were not white. It, you know, Koreans, for example, just had a better grasp on this. And I can't prove that. <laughs> but I just, felt, I just felt like it was more solidarity than appropriation. And in some ways, it made me, made me think about the music differently. Like, what is it saying that I'm not hearing? It's speaking to people, and, you, and there's no denying that. What is it saying, and why, they, why are they responsive? And maybe they identify. And maybe they have empathy for the Black artists. And, you know, I mean, you know, all kinds of possibilities that I wasn't really thinking about. This idea of possibility, why the music resonated with Korean Americans. I think some of it goes back to what Jay, the activist, said earlier about how Koreans carry our own history of oppression and distrust. And we've been trying to cover some of that history in this series to see how it doesn't just show up in Koreans and Korean-Americans, but in the genre of K-pop. And the music has been shaped by these large global movements like Japanese and American imperialism and the spread of hip-hop overseas. But somehow, talking about things like Black Korea and the relationship between the Black and Korean communities in Los Angeles. It feels more specific and closer to home. And my conversations with Aaron and Jay and Namdi make me realize, underneath all of these big historical movements are real people. Like Aaron and Jay, they literally know each other through Larry, Aaron's dad, and Jay's colleague. Jay Lee Wong. My father spoke a lot about her. He, he liked her a lot, by the way. Thought she had, you know, they were on the same page about a lot of things. Larry and I shared that understanding, and that's why we are able to work together. We had that understanding of our history and experiences. I asked Jay if she kept in touch with Larry after 1992. So we would get together every so often. Of course, we moved on. I went to work at different places, and Larry stayed at the county until he retired. But we'll get together, and we'll often meet in Koreatown because he likes rice and bulgogi. That was his thing. And we'll just start telling stories and laugh, and everybody turn around and see why we're so loud, you know. But we developed a friendship, and we maintained those friendships for a long time. So how do we think about Black American music and K-pop, while also thinking about the difficult relationship between the Black and Korean communities in Los Angeles? Well, I think this is where we start. With conversations like the ones Jay and Larry had over rice and bulgogi in Koreatown, and their shared understanding of each other's history. 
Next time on K-Pop Dreaming. After the LA uprising, Koreatown begins to rebuild, and the neighborhood starts looking very different. Especially after the emergence of a brand new industry, K-Pop. That's next time on K-Pop Dreaming. K-Pop Dreaming is written and hosted by me, Vivian Yoon. The show is a production of LAist Studios. Fiona Ng is the senior producer and show creator. Our producers are James Chow, Minju Park, and me, Vivian Yoon. Sophia Polizakar is our editor. This episode is sound designed by James Chow. Gloria Oh and Jessica Yeso Kim are our Korean researchers and translators. Fact-checking by Minju Park. Our consultant for this episode is Janelle Brown. Parker McDaniels is our mix engineer. Our director is Taylor Kaufman. Original music by Stephen Tran. Our interns are Jens Campbell and Sarah Burnett. Special thanks to Jacqueline Kim, Quincy Sura-Smith, Tony Marcano, Catherine Mailhouse, Ryan Lee Wong, Topher Ruth, and the Berkeley Advanced Media Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.